1: and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Every semester, we at Reese spotlight a few faculty affiliated with our center. This week's podcast is the second in our faculty spotlights, an interview with Biela Gregorian. Biela is an associate professor of Slavic literature and languages at Pitt. In this interview, we talked about her experience growing up in Los Angeles' Armenian community, how she got interested in Russian literature, and her work on the development of the Russian novel, and its treatment of the nobility's changing political, legal, and social definitions in the first half of the 19th century. Bella Gregorian is an associate professor of Slavic Literature and Languages at the University of Pittsburgh, where she researches Russian literature, media, and print culture in the 18th and 19th centuries. She's the author of Noble Subjects, the Russian Novel and the Gentry, 1762-1861. Published by Northern Illinois University Press. Here's Bella Gregorian. So, um, just just to start, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Who you are? Some of your background.
0: Um, I'm Bella Gregorian. I teach Russian literature at the University of Pittsburgh. My f- family immigrated from the former Soviet Union um, in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. So I guess after it was um, no longer a so- the Soviet Union. Um, I grew up in California, and and then I've been on the East Coast since the early 2000s. Mm-hmm.
1: And you, you, you're you, a family immigrated from Armenia?
0: Yes. I mean, I was born in Yerevan, and I, I yeah,
1: so what was it like growing up in an Armenian community in Southern California? Because it's a big mm. – anybody who knows anything, it's a big deal, right? It's one of the, probably the largest diaspora.
0: I think, yeah, it's a very sizable community. What's really interesting about it, I think, is that um, it's this kind of meeting ground or melting pot of different kinds of Armenians mm. from really all over, um, you know, from – Russia, Armenia, Lebanon, Syria, um, Iran, of course. So it's interesting because, of course, there are cultural and historical, dialectical, like linguistic um, differences. And I think for an armenologist, it's very interesting as the space where these distinct communities with their own histories and so forth um, come together and really mix mm-hmm. quite a bit Um so in in that respect, it's a very interesting, almost like an experiment.
1: Do you get a do because you know I lived in Los Angeles too, and of course I remember uh, is it April twenty fourth? Yes, uh, and and you know Armenians driving in their cars in Hollywood with Armenian flags for to commemorate the genocide. Um, out of that mix of of people from all different parts of the region, do you? How is it one sense of being an Armenian, like, kind of concretized there? Like, how are the differences somewhat overcome? I'm assuming the memory of the, the commemoration of the genocide is one way.
0: Yeah, I think that, uh, I think in the historical narrative about the that particular ethnic group, usually religion is given a certain kind of preponderance because um well, because Armenia didn't have statehood from the 14th century until the early 20th century, when it had independence for about two years. And then, of course, it was incorporated into the USSR. And, and then now it's a republic, um, an independent republic. And so um, it's actually a really interesting question. Um, sort of what how has Armenianness persisted in the absence of a distinct polity that was Na- in, uh, nationally, sort of congruous with <laughs> with, with the group, right? Um, so I think religion plays uh, pr- has played a, a, an important role historically. Currently, you're probably right that um, I would say, unfortunately, um, that the genocide has has. Come to, in some sense, almost supplant all other aspects of Armenian culture in the kind of in public discourse. And I actually really don't much like that. I think mm-hmm. it's too bad. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I understand very well why that is, right. um, because it is this kind of defining moment. I think for a lot of um, for a lot of people, for their national self understanding and self fashioning, and so on. Um, but actually, it's a very sad state of affairs if you think about it in this way where like it's it's so prominent mm-hmm. in I mean in public life, and particularly in I think how the culture is viewed globally. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me a kind of continuation of um but uh, of a trauma, if you will. You know, right. Does that make sense? Yeah, because
1: the the national identity is very is rooted in a trauma, right? Yeah. It it it's and you can see this, I mean I, I you can see this amongst a lot of, you know, twentieth century nationalisms where there was a trauma, whether it's Ukrainian yes. nationalism or Jewish national or Zionism um, it's, it's the, founded on the trauma and then it has, you have to reproduce the trauma in every generation, <laughs> uh, to maintain as a, as a, as a cornerstone of that national identity, right. Um, what about, before we move on to other things, one other question about to, you know, use you as a token, <laughs> um, what about the relationship with Armenia now, now that Armenia is a Republic, you know, in a lot of diaspora communities, you have this imagined Armenia or imagined, yes. you know, homeland, uh, and then, you, of course, you have the reality of it. Yes. So where does Armenia play in the imagination of the diaspora?
0: So, um, incidentally, that in some sense is a, is a project that I have in the works as a kind of secondary tertiary mm-hmm. um, um, book that um, that uh, is in the very early stages of preparation. I'm, I'm particularly curious about Yerevan, mm-hmm. about the capital the, of modern Armenia. Um I'm curious about it for a lot of different reasons. So it's interesting, I think, to think about that particular urban center um, as a kind of, well, as as I guess the most... um, active side in the kind of global diasporic imagination um, for what Armenia meant for for the Ottoman expatriate um, communities for the Iranian communities and uh, I mean the thing is uh, Armenians have been diasporic for a very very long time um, for example I think it's I've I, I believe that the first Armenian newspaper was published in Madras in the 18th century in the 1770s so it's you know um, it's a long history of being diasporic and what's quite Interesting then, of course, is to think about the spaces um, that come to stand for home, right? Because there are potentially multiple historic homelands that one can think of, um, like Kingdom of Kilikia, um, Anatolia, and then the Republic of Armenia. So it's very interesting to think about which spaces attract what kind of longing, what kind of investment, and so forth. And when it comes to... Um, Yerevan, in particular, it's the Soviet history is very interesting as well because um, in the, well, I suppose in the 40s, 50s, and so forth, it became um, a place f- where various diasporic Armenians were, in some sense, invited to repopulate. And so if you read journalistic coverage, for example, of the Soviet Republic of Armenia in the 1950s. Or if you read Maria de various writings, including a, uh, she produced, I think in the 50s, a book called Soviet Armenia, Soviet Armenia, and so on. Um, she treats it as this like, extremely cosmopolitan space um, as this, this melting pot where you can hear Greek on one corner, Arabic, and the other and the other adjacent street, and you know, French elsewhere and so forth. Um so there's this real kind of celebration of this like multilingual, multicultural space, but that's actually ethnically quite homogeneous. Right. So so it's it's interesting. And I do think that um to trace the history of that particular well, city, especially for for my purposes, through the 20th century and into the 21st, because I mean, uh, Armenia also saw an influx of Syrian refugees. I mean, if Syrian Armenian refugees in, around, starting in 2012 or so um, is 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 very interesting.
1: Um, so, uh, given given your background, you know, as Armenian Armenian immigrant or your family immigrated to Armenia uh, from Armenia to Southern California. Um, and you, clearly you, your interest in it at some point to to do like an academic study. What, what got you interested in Russian literature? <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I mean, I, I grew up fully bilingual, bicultural um, in every sense. And so, I mean, I was, you know, I, I, I read it as a child, of course, but as an area of serious study as a profession, um, Russian literature became interesting to me at Berkeley um, where I was an undergrad. I started out as an English major, and then I took some... Uh, what I would call gateway courses um, that were, you know, life-changing truly because here we are. Um, so I would say Berkeley, Slavic, um, I would say that it was very much studying in that department that made me um, think of this as a, as a vocation. And then I actually started out as a comparativist in grad school. Like I was going to do this project on... Um, the transnational flow of ideas around um, basically romantic nationalism on the one hand, and then later on socialism, mm-hmm. like towards the end of the 19th century. And I was interested in how um, – basically how – which intellectual currents went through transcaucasia – when, how, et cetera. Like, we, like, for example, it's interesting to look at where um, various 19th century Transcaucasian intellectuals were educated, like if somebody went to Dorpat versus, you know, and so forth. So, um, so, to kind of trace those currents and, and to think about that space um, in a kind of world lit context, I guess if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So, so what happened?
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> what happened was I um, I took my first course in 18th century Russian literature um, at Columbia. And it, I think like a lot of grad students, it was my first exposure to that time period. And um, yeah, it was really compelling in some part because also it was very new. And um, and then going forward, I, I decided that I wanted... Um, Kind of more holistic understanding of the Russian tradition, because I realized there were sort of too many time periods that I was interested in to really do complete. Um, and then I actually ended up—I mean, Slavic is such an interesting field that, that I actually ended up kind of completing, um, in some sense, a complete degree anyway through coursework because I have I've retained uh, secondary and tertiary areas of you know pedagogy and research in in uh, French and Armenian literature. So, you know.
1: It's always there. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think most 18th and 19th century Russianists are to some extent comparativists. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. You know. I mean, that, that does come across to some extent in, in your book, the mo- your most recent book, which is Noble Subjects, the Russian Novel and the Gentry, 1762 to 1861. Um, first, I have to say that I appreciate anyone who's going to deal with uh, the late 18th, 18th century and the Nikolaivan period in Russia. It's a It seems to be a period that's I mean, maybe hopefully you can correct me, but it's a period that seems to be falling more and more out of favor, um, particularly the 18th century. Um, so how did you come to this topic to deal with the issue of the nobility in particular?
0: So I think uh, I think you're right that in some sense, especially for our undergrads, the 19th century has receded to almost where the 18th century was 20 years ago. Um, I suspect it's some kind of set of cognitive operations with, think moving from tw- the 2000s to the 1800s. Mm-hmm. That's that's made this so. But um, so, well, it, this is my first book. It's a dissertation book. It started out as a dissertation. And actually, when um, when I began to work on the dissertation, you know, like in some sense, again, the conceptual apparatus that I brought to 19th century Russian literature was. Shaped a, very much by uh, through reading um, scholarship on French, English, and to a lesser degree American nineteenth and eighteenth century literature. So, I was going to write a dissertation on like on domesticity, mm-hmm. on it was going to culminate in, in the Russian realist novels rendering of home life, which is to say that I sort of like I came to Anna Karenina looking for Madame Bovary, right? And uh, I mean I was. Um, I was quickly prompted to reorient because as I began to read about domestic culture in Russia, um, and most of that reading was actually not literary, most of that reading was periodicals, domestic manuals, farming manuals, conduct books, things like that, um, I came to see that first of all, okay, so domestic culture or sort of housekeeping, the Greek kind of Ekoikos Nemo, right, economia, house management, is the Mavutstvo. And in the Russian case, its meanings are multiple. So if you want to figure out what is the Mavutstvo, let's say in the 1840s, and you pick up Notes of the Fatherland, which had a section called the Mavutstvo, it's a lot of different things. It could be taking stains out of your nightgown, or or it could be uh, farming manuals. I mean, it could be, you know, things about the three and seven... Uh, field crop rotation system. What was crucial uh, to, to my mind was that, um, whereas in the scholarship I'd been reading that had to do mostly with middle class and bourgeois 19th century domesticity, um, women were at the forefront. So the middle class women, as, as a political subject, for example, in uh, English realist fiction, right? In the Russian case, it gradually became apparent to me that this was not at all necessarily going to be the same. Mm -hmm. Um, This is not to claim that men were exclusively associated with with the mavodstvo, but they were strongly associated with it. And gradually I came to recalibrate the project around what I would call a, a... masculine domestic ideology that still has a lot to do with Russian political culture and so forth. But you see how uh, a a project that started out with certain presumptions um, that were shaped through exposure to um, studies of Western societies got recalibrated to better fit.
1: And how do you explain this difference in gender orientation? for in in the Russian case versus what you were seeing in the European case
0: so I I think it has a lot to do with property holding patterns and with the history of social estates that is Saslovia um, in Russia and and again, um, it's not to claim, an exclusivity for the Paimyschik as an interesting figure in 18th and 19th century culture, but it is to claim an exclusivity for a certain um, kind of urgency around um, the question of this particular creature's domestic life mm-hmm. sphere and so forth.
1: Right.
0: And and I think the explanation for that is the the cultural and legal history of the nobility.
1: Right. Yeah, because as you point – as your book starts out, I mean the the nobility uh, beginning in 1762 where they're essentially emancipated from state service by the short reign of Peter III, (laughs) um, his six-month reign. But nonetheless, this is an important key reform because – it, it totally redefines the life trajectory of what is expected out of this class whereas before because of Peter the Great they're supposed to do go into state service in some form or another now they're kind they're uh, emancipated from that and it's kind of like it's, it's kind of you know to put it frankly what am I supposed to do with my life <laughs>
0: right, right. <laughs> and, and
1: and then and then till you know your book goes all the way into t- 1861 where Another crisis of the nobility occurs because of the great reforms, but that's a whole different other story. So, so what are some of the things – talk about that this 100-year period you're discussing and how the nobility is faced with this uh, you know, need to reorient and transform itself.
0: So I think the first thing that, that, I, that I should say is um, about heterogeneity. That is to say um, even taking the long view – even beginning before the chronological boundaries of, of my study um, and moving through to the tail end of the, of the 19th century, the nobility uh, as, a, as an estate is extraordinarily heterogeneous, diverse in terms of, um, well, on just about every front. And a good illustrative example is that a person who is set to own 3,000 serfs and a person who is set to own 15 serfs are technically both nobles, Mm -hmm. you know, but they would have had wildly different upbringings, outlooks, aspirations, access to power um, and relationships to the provinces. Now, there's this kind of mythology that arises largely in the 19th century through the literary tradition about the nobleman who comes home and has a very tenuous, weak connection to his patrimony, to his holdings and so forth. Um, whether that mythology is historically accurate is a complex question, again, because of heterogeneity of all sorts. So, for instance, uh, there's a, a, a study, a lovely study of Tweed province by Mary Cavender where she shows that actually tweed province landowners in, under Nicholas I were quite connected to their local communities, um, to the pro- their provincial towns and so forth. There is, to my mind, a... a a very illuminating microhistory um, of Vladimir province landowners um, by Kate Pickering Antonova is called An Ordinary Marriage um, that, that again sh- just reveals a lot that I think we didn't know about what she calls middling <coughs> nobles. Who again are quite connected to Vladimir to their local communities and so forth. So, in that case, the nineteenth-century mythology about the nobleman who returns and doesn't know his home doesn't really work. Now, that said, it seems to me that that this, to my project at any rate, to the argument I make in the book, what is central is the relationship to property, and again, that's like it's a it's a. a matter of some longevity. So if you think about even the word its origins are in, in, in the Muscovite period and has to do with the verb So it's somebody it's a, it's a member of the elite who is placed on a piece of land in exchange for military service. Is that land ownership? Um, hmm. Then as your listeners and as your supporters will appreciate you have the Petrine introduction of the Table of Ranks um, and uh, the Petrine also kind of recalibration of what were, again, heterogeneous elites into one Mm dvarianstva. But, like, again... how, how might we think in that case about what is nobility, in fact, right. especially because with the table of ranks, it becomes attainable through service. It becomes possible to um, to for newcomers to advance and so forth.
1: Right. It, it disrupts the hereditary nature of the nobility as such. Yeah. This, this interest it's, it's, The issue of property is a really interesting one because what you also see in, in some of your discussion is uh, – and through novels – well – before I get to that, let me ask you this then. Um, you – in your introduction, you speak about how at, coinciding with this, you know, development of what is the noble identity, this thinking about it, this hand-wringing over it. You also get the development of the Russian novel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, anyone who knows anything about Russia, the novel has a very particular role in society and culture. Um in some cases, the novel is the main one of the main uh, ways to, you know, express criticism of social life. So, what what role does the novel play in Russian society in the period you're talking about, and and what is its connection with the nobility?
0: So, I think that the novel uh, well, it plays many roles, but in connection specifically with with this this um, question, well. It's a kind of carrier of a domestic ideology, you could say, right? Um, You can think about, um, on the one hand, it is a, um, one genre among many, one cultural form among many. you know, while I don't disagree with you about its its exclusive status in a certain sense, right, because um, of the preponderance of Aesopian language and so forth, all of that is true. But um, I'm inclined to actually kind of embed these very canonical texts or less canonical texts by very canonical writers like Pushkin, um, whose unfinished works I deal with in a, um, a kind of thick description, a kind of thicker Uh, richly articulated context that's actually mostly non-novelistic. And what you see, I think, when you do that um, is a kind of, I would say, pervasive interest or preoccupation in defining noble status. And then more specifically, as you began to say earlier, in thinking about what should the non-serving nobleman do? Now, the 1762 manifesto that that freed them from obligatory state service, first of all, was in some sense prepared by uh, various things happening under Elizabeth Petrovna, um, and and even earlier. Um, you know, the historians have written. Really interestingly, for example, about um, how Anna and the dealt with the possibility of a council and then the fear that it would turn into an oligarchy. And so then, you know, kind of the reinstatement very quickly of absolute autocracy. But. Um, Without imagining that all nobles had a corporate sense of identity, there's a way in which 1762, in as much as it's a kind of symbolic watershed moment, is prepared by various things that predate it. But also, if you look at historical narratives, it's not at all clear that it resulted in everybody retiring all of a sudden, right? right? Depends on whom you contact, where you look. Again, heterogeneity, I think, rules the day. So um, nevertheless, it seems to me that in the aftermath of 1762, in what I call advisedly kind of pre-novelistic texts that appear under Catherine. Um, and then in the novelistic tradition that takes over in the 19th century, there is um, increased interest in the shape that noble private life may take. But curiously enough, it's both a noble private life and a noble public life. Yes. So, like, if you look at the development of Catherineian letters, right, like literature under Catherine, um, on the one hand, if you look at the evolution of certain poetic genres, like if you look at an ouvre like Der Ravins, for instance, um, one of the things you see is that there's a greater capacity that literary texts have for representing interiority, privacy, retreat from public life. Um, and there's a, the thesis that the retreat happens towards the late 1780s for kind of obvious reasons, um, but actually it also it happens throughout the reign because the the, the there's a kind of literary historical sense in which it beco- private life becomes more and more available for literary representation. At the same time, if you look at the other side, uh, or one other side of many, of cultural production under Catherine, um, you have the rise of, for example, satirical journalism. It is a much more publicly oriented form, and there what is cultivated is the the Russian imperial subject, not necessarily nobleman, but also quite often nobleman as a kind of potential participant in a public sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's this kind of two-sided right. phenomenon. I
1: yeah, think. and that, that's something that you you deal with too is this notion of, uh, you know, and this is an argument that <coughs> – well, my voice is bad today. Um, you deal with – this is an argument that expands – you know Russian his historians of Russia are 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 concerned with it political commentators today are concerned with it and as the issue of civil society yes. and and what what the hell that is yeah. and and depending on what it is what is it supposed to do like what 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 is it supposed to role is it supposed to play in variety of societies so um how do you understand civil society and, and talk a bit more about how you you identify the formation of this in terms of the participation of nobility in public life?
0: Yes. So the first thing I should say about that is that the um, some of the most interesting historical scholarship in the last, I would say, 20 or so years has shown, A, that there were formations one could call civil society, public sphere, and imperial Russia, which I think we're quite inclined to – think of as a place that did not have these things. And and I think that's a blind spot, again, that comes from um, looking at Russian imperial history with with Western eyes in a way. Like if you're expecting a liberal democratic public sphere, you're not going to find it. But if you're a little bit more open about what you might hope to find, Mm -hmm. you will find interesting things. So some of the very interesting scholarship has actually been about non-noble Participants in public life, um, coming from the merchantry, from the shanstwa and so forth. Um, So literate persons who um, produce, I mean, if we're thinking about a textually constituted public sphere, who who produced circulated text Mm -hmm. and engage in various kinds of publicity, one might say, right, publicness. Um, Its political ramifications, again, I think if we come to them with minimal expectations, we can kind of consider more soberly. Right. Um, so, for instance, I mean, one thing I, I look at in this study is the Free Economic Society, which is a voluntary association, but it was a voluntary association that was very, very, very closely linked to Catherine. Right. So, okay, if you're a public sphere scholar, what do you do with the fact that it involves, well, it was a, it had great longevity, so let's say in the under Catherine, and um, it you're you're looking at uh, an institution that had a, a publicly circulated journal, didn't have a very high circulation rate, but okay, it invited participation. Um, it also you know it's it had a kind of coffee hour, a meet, you know, that is to say that they had they held meetings, or it is even indicated in the materials you can read now that they they were able to get I forget I think a tea or coffee. Um, so it looks very sort of public sphere-like mm-hmm. except it's very close to the crown. Right. So, um, I don't know if this answers your question adequately but I, I find very interesting the possibility that studying other scenarios, other regimes of publicness in under autocracy mm-hmm. can actually help us recalibrate the conceptual frameworks we bring right. to basically the the um, the different kinds of configuration between um, print journalism, public life, and political life
1: Yeah, I, I think you you know you're right, and I've had this discussion with other people in in interviews when we talk about civil society and and that is the the assumption that civil society to be a true civil Mm -hmm. society, in air quotes, it must be somehow oppositional to the state, Mm -hmm. right? It has to stand as some sort of either check on the state or, you know, in some cases, you know, I think thanks to the revolutions of 1989, the idea that civil society is against the state. Whereas, you know, somebody like Antonio Gramsci Mm -hmm. wrote, uh, about how civil society is actually a main buttress of the hegemony of the state, the hegemony of the ruling class. And here by, by you know, seeing the various publics that you're talking about, I think in a way that is one of the potential sites of hegemony for the imperial system. Yes.
0: And in some sense, that's where, <clears throat> that's where the book ends. Mm-hmm. Um, because, well, on the one hand, the book ends with like the last scene of the Karenina where, you know, they – sort of uh, Leuven turns inward, you know, it's a home scene, it's, mm-hmm. it's like really private, it's, it's kind of an anti-public sphere moment, but the novel opens with Stieva reading Goulas, right? And actually, it opens with Steva as a kind of Habermasian mass market subject, mm-hmm. right? As a subject who's constituted by print capitalism, and so he no longer thinks for himself, mm-hmm. right? Um, what's interesting also is because you see that in the history of Anakidin's publication, because as as of course your listeners know, the eighth book was not published by Katkov's Russkiy Vesnik because of Tolstoy's treatment of um, Russian involvement, in, but of the Russo-Turkish War, and um, and what's quite interesting is that if you read. Scholars of journalism, um, I've come across the notion that this is actually the first instance where the Russian imperial government was prompted to engage militarily by public opinion, which is to say that public opinion was robust enough that it could sort of do this. Uh,
1: Another tension that you are kind of working out within the nobility is the notion of them as subjects. And becoming something like citizens, mm-hmm. but you know, not too. What talk about this dynamic and, and what is this all about?
0: Well, so it seems to me that in order to be a, a citizen, one would have to not live in an autocracy, right? <laughs> um, but what I, the way I deal with this in the book has to do quite. Specifically, with some Catherine era legislation that followed in the wake of uh, the 1762 Manifesto. So, in 1775, she kind of reorganizes provincial space and provincial self-government, even to some extent. In 1782, nobles get the right to industry. In 1785, she gives the charter to the nobility. What is the charter to the nobility? Well, some historians call it a kind of constitution of the Ancien Regime, and what that means is that it's not a constitution, but it is. <laughs> you see, because during the ancien regime, you can't have a constitution that is that that supersedes the will of the autocrat, mm-hmm. right? So, so that's what I mean by subject citizenship. It's this actually this hybrid condition that I think persists throughout the period because we won't have a constitution throughout the period under study. Um, so it's a kind of hybrid political condition of for the nobility in particular, but I think one could make this argument for other groups as well. Um, of of having rights articulated in legal discourse, but I immediately want to say we shouldn't call them rights because these are privileges and privileges for which the nobility should have obligations. And incidentally, this is also where the kind of the the tension around property comes into play because if previously servitors of various stripes um, had control over land and the serfs and the humans who lived on it um, in exchange for service, right? Once they, don't, when, once they no longer serve, there's this kind of imbalance. I mean, most famously Kluchevsky writes about this, that w- um, but in a sense, Sumarokov identified it in the late 18th century, well, 1770s already, where if I'm a nobleman and I consume the fruits of other people's labor without serving the state, then I'm a parasite.
1: Is is the is there also a an, a, diff, a change in the orientation of identity here? Whereas, you know, the, the the notion of subject means you serve the monarch, whereas citizens and you have certain duties and privileges as a result of those duties and obligations. Whereas, when you have a citizen orientation, your you your duty, your sense of duty, and the privileges that come with it are are more orientated to society, mm-hmm. right? And here here I'm getting into like the ethics of being, that you discuss of being, say, a good landlord, mm-hmm. right? A model landowner, um, or even the, the participation of them in some kind of public mm-hmm. that's larger than their household or larger than the affairs of, you know, going on in St. Petersburg. Um, it, it, do, can you talk about, is that orientation also there for them? And trying to figure out what is their, you know, now that they're released from service, what are they going to do with their life? <laughs> well, I think I think
0: it depends on how how charitably one regards the situation, because um, on the one hand, it seems to me that because of the pervasive connection between noble identity and service, so that. Actually, throughout the second half of the 18th and the 19th century, it remained socially inappropriate not to serve the state. Um, you see this in all sorts of places, probably most famously, again, in Anna Karenina, reflects that he's seen by his social peers as a person who does nothing. Yeah. So there's a curious way in which those, those um, private pursuits or like that local usefulness that Tolstoy was interested in in various ways, right, even biographically founding schools and sort of what various kinds of local enterprise, the, there's, they can still be valued in public discourse in, a, in this kind of empty way, right? The other side of it is that um, because of the pervasive connection between noble identity and service, in... Russian public discourse, once it becomes, I would say, especially robust beginning with the 1820s, for me, I know other people who study the second half of the 19th century will say, no, that's when it really starts. No, I I think it it becomes markedly more robust in the 1820s. So there's a lot about the landowner... um, as a good citizen, well, citizen, subject, something, as a good resident, Mm -hmm. um, but really actually as a good subject citizen, because, citizen because, of course, um, there's a degree of autonomy, but subject because the very things you mention about these kind of private pursuits, private scenarios of usefulness, if you will, are very often recast in terms of ultimately service to the crown. Mm -hmm. So... So there's a rhetorical operation that recurs throughout the artifacts I examine, where private life is described quite robustly, but then re-inscribed into state service. Right. That's not state service, but it is state service.
1: Mm-hmm. It? It's kind of a roundabout way of yeah. getting there. Yeah. And what about the, what about the relationship to serfdom and serfs? Because you also have another another kind of discourse that's running through here is the. The the nobleman as potential entrepreneur, yeah. right? And Now they're given right, you know, privileges to engage in industry. Um, historians of the peasantry have written about the role, the development of proto-industrialization, which nobody thought of before. <laughs> uh, another parallel with 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 Europe, uh, and and nobles are are renting out uh, their serfs to you know in various kind of cottage and industrial pursuits, uh, mining things like this. So. Um, What about their relationship to their their main mode of economic livelihood?
0: I think, again, heterogeneity. Because, I mean, so on the one hand, when it comes to the, the historical record, in as much as we can access it, and, and I realize that even that locution is kind of problematic because, like, which record? Right. But, um, but even when it comes to the way in which this situation is interpreted by professional historians, and I'm, of course, a literature scholar, um, it's, it's complex. Um, when it comes to representations, um, what's quite interesting is that actually, to a significant extent, noble enterprise – of the sort you mention, mm-hmm. remains a little bit of a social taboo. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly we know that people engaged in it, but, um, but I think in the novelistic representations, but actually also in journalism, like if you uh, read about, uh, let's say, the press's coverage of how nobles can profit from their estates. Faizie Bulgaden write, wrote a lot about this and is one of the uh, sort of figures under study here um, for a range of reasons that also had to do with just the fact that he happened to be Faizie Bulgaden, um, but, but that included also that, that he, the way he wrote about nobles profiting from their estates included figures and specific plans and so forth. Um, there's a way in which this is a taboo thing to talk about in public discourse, mm. say in the 1840s, for example. Um, so that and, – and I think it's in some part a kind of a – maybe a, a preoccupation with a possible ambourgeoisement. Like mm-hmm. a – um, so I think when it comes to representations – um, particularly novelistic representations for writer, for, for example, for Ganchirov, it's very difficult to describe a successful, enterprising nobleman. Mm-hmm. In his last novel of his trilogy, Abrief in the Ravine, there is the landowner Tushin, who is like super industrious. His peasants live. Better than I do, you know. They, they sort of, they, I mean, they have these very, very nice huts, and everything is very shiny, and he has technology. And there's this moment when Dreisky goes and sort of the um, nobleman character in the novel, who is a kind of an artist, and who is, um, he's kind of provides the meta-commentary about literary production and artistic production in general. And he goes to view Tushin's um, estate, and and looks especially at the kind of the technological innovations which have a long pedigree in the Russian novel because you can think of someone like Kostan in the second half of Dead Souls um, and there are other, and actually Vronsky and Anna Karinina and that, but, um, which of course comes after Abruf. But anyway, he looks at like this, this I guess we would call it now high-tech estate <laughs> and has no idea how to describe it. Right, interesting. Yeah.
1: What about the, so, but what about the representation of, of the, how they relate to the institution of serfdom?
0: In what sense?
1: In the sense of you know, by the end of your your story, <laughs> um, and and for you know many years before that, there are serious discussions yes. about abolishing serfdom, and the question is more about how to do it rather than when you know to do it. Um, is is part of this this representation of uh, uh, of and figuring out of noble identity what is its relationship to the institution of serfdom?
0: Well, first of all, I think it's noteworthy that Catherine had initially thought to release a charter to the peasants and never did. Mm -hmm. But even kind of conceptually, right, there's an imbalance if the other estates have something that the peasantry doesn't, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Hmm. I'm not sure how to I mean, I don't deal a whole lot with the emancipation of the serfs. I think in some part because it's it's an well, on the one hand, it kind of falls outside of the 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 really the thing that I'm focused on in this in this study. But I think actually also serfdom is really um for particularly for literature specialists. it's it's complicated to study in some part because of the Soviet. Um, heritage Hmm. yeah so because a lot of the the texts that i i look at in this book um and i often look at the soviet editions because they're you know beautiful academic editions and so forth um but they're read as more explicitly anti-serfdom than you and i might be likely to read them so there's so there's a kind of uh A set of operations that one must perform to like to really think about um, how, let's say, satirical journalism under Catherine, how it really deals with the question of serfdom. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Is is that because, I mean, this is actually really interesting mm -hmm. because uh, is it because there's the Soviet put forward a, a tradition of, of kind of locating everybody's
0: an abolitionist. <laughs>
1: right. Like locating in in the text, like where is the opposition to serfdom? When it, where is it? So it's kind of it's become I mean I don't want to be so flippant to say that it's not in style, but it's it hasn't there hasn't been a, a rethinking of this in literary studies.
0: I think there is currently Okay. Um, there is currently a rethinking of of both also like the representation of of. The peasants as a right. as a as an uh, well, as an estate, and of course we should remember that um, per- serfs and peasants are not homologous; are not synonymous. Mm-hmm. Or there's there's not a hundred uh, percent, anywhere near, um, overlap. So, but but there's there are uh, interesting things certainly being written about, uh, for example, peasants is an object of representation in Turgenev. Mm-hmm. Right? What I think is um, is what I think I was referring to, I suppose, is that um, so if you look at someone like Nevikov, um, I think that the Soviet commentary really, really simplifies his politics and, and particularly around serfdom and actually also around the extent to which um, he was in dialogue versus polemics. Not that those are very, very different things. With Catherine at various points in his in his career. And and serfdom, I think, is the question that is kind of the most um, well probably was the most interesting to to the Soviet um, scholars writing about this period.
1: The reason why I ask um, is because I'm really um, saddened (laughs) by, let's say, if you look at the literature on slavery, Mm -hmm. Mm African-Americans, it's such a rich, rich literature. And serfdom... Has completely disappeared as a, you know, as a history. At least from my side, as a historical subject, like no one, very, very few people are, you know, dealing with it and even rethinking it since you know the opening of archives in any uh, substantial way.
0: uh, I agree. I think I agree, and I think think, um, in part, part, first of all, I think that juxtaposition is really revealing. It's also revealing in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Like if you read, um, well, really any kind of 19th century literature, right, with undergraduates, you have to explain in some fashion what was serfdom. Mm -hmm. And conceptually, I mean, it's then a question of sort of where do you place it um, in relation to American slavery?
1: As a, as a as a refer even as a reference yeah. point yeah. because it's such a different more complicated system um, well I don't know if about difficult or more complicated but it's a different system let's just say that. I think
0: because Russian serfdom, w- you know, wasn't it, I mean? It wasn't racialized in an obvious way, mm-hmm. but it was racialized in another way that's right. quite familiar to us. So actually, that's an interesting point. I mean, because w- there's a lot of scholarship a lot about um, the estrangement of the nobility from the serfs in a cultural sense, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then a kind of double estrangement from their own selves because the rational elites are sort of both. Western in a performative way and Russian in a performative way. Um, So so there's that. But I I think you're right that, you know, one would expect that there would be more. Mm -hmm. I mean, about serfdom specifically as a political institution, as an economic institution, um, as something that's really shaped the world in which it existed. Mm -hmm.
1: As a teacher of Russian literature, you know, you you are tasked with the, you know, having students be interested in this. Um, and so what are some of the things, like what, what kind of lessons do you think we can take from reading Russian literature today? Like how do, how do you approach that even in the classroom to get students to see something that, it, that Russian, whatever novel or literary figure you're reading or reading about uh, says something to, you know, for us to reflect on?
0: So I think a lot about <clears throat> why we teach literature and how we do it and um I mean I guess I would say a, a, a couple of things maybe um on the one hand you know maybe without making any claims about Russia being uniquely equipped to make us better um I would <laughs> I would say that um I I often wonder about teaching big books, just the doorstoppers, Mm -hmm. and um, our, I mean, much lamented decreased capacity to read them, which actually isn't really borne out in student experiences. Like if you give them War and Peace to read, more often than not, they will read it because it's a page turner, Mm -hmm. I like to think, and I actually think it is. I mean, I I think this is true. Um, So one area that, that is of interest to me um, at the moment, in some part because I'm working on a, my current project, which is very much a kind of media history project with dealing with the Nicolae period, period, um, is the ways in which, of course, various kinds of media products, media forms shape us cognitively, um, which is just a kind of fancy way of saying, like, we, of course, understand ourselves now to live in one of the most politically polarized periods in perhaps in human history, I don't know. But certainly, you know, I don't think in our lifetimes um, American or even global public discourse has been as polarized as it is currently and as impatient. Mm -hmm. So that you might even, or one might even find oneself disagreeing with a person with whom they basically agree, except this one thing Mm -hmm. that they posted inappropriately on Facebook and it's like the end of the world. And it's a short thing right? Because Facebook posts are definitionally shorter than war and peace. Um, and I've read it and I'm angry and I need to talk about it. So there's a way in which, um, and I say this not as a cognitive scientist, but as a, a literature um, teacher. It seems to me that <clears throat> that reading big books tra- shapes us cognitively as well. And I hope that one of the ways in which it shapes us is in cultivating patience, like in cultivating kind of longer-term attention um, that might curb the impulse to um, respond immediately with antagonism.
1: And do you find... What what is your... uh... Have you found it to be somewhat successful or you're still ex- in the experimental stage? I am not
0: carrying out a study <laughs> <laughs> that would tell us whether this actually works. Um, and, and you know, I don't know. But I do think that, that the notion that the literature or the humanities classroom is a kind of um, potentially a kind of training c- sphere for um, basically nonviolent modes of citizenship – I don't think that's terribly far-fetched. And by citizenship, I don't mean it in a legal sense. I mean it in a sense of belonging to a community, interacting with a community, um, and having opinions. So like nowadays, I list on my course syllabi that one of the, course outco- the hoped-for course outcomes is the cultivation of an ability to read, write, speak, and then in italics, I say listen.
1: That was Bella Gregorian, an associate professor of Slavic literatures and languages at the University of Pittsburgh where she researches Russian literature, media, and print culture in the 18th and 19th centuries. She's the author of Noble Subjects, the Russian Novel and the Gentry, 1762-1861, to published by Northern Illinois University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, I want to thank my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for their continued patronage, And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.